0: We're in the business of trying to build something special for people and the mechanism to get there in ways should be behind the curtain in terms of their experience. But at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to do something special and something you know spectacular or meaningful in some way. I think it's keeping that core idea. Don't be afraid to be bold and deliver something that somebody honestly gives a shit about. At the end of the day, we're not delivering disposable cups. This is something that we want the, the users to enjoy for 40, 60, 80 years, whatever it is, right? Maybe it's an heirloom. Maybe they pass it on to their kids.
1: Welcome to Friends of Build Magazine. I'm your host, Ted Bainbridge. I've been traveling the world and working in publications for 30 years. In 2016, we launched our first issue of Build Magazine, a publication dedicated to high-end home construction, renovation, and the innovative experts that make this possible. This podcast was created to have some fun and explore those who have taken on the challenge of building luxury homes in demanding locations. From navigating logistics and construction to excavating the earth, we want to learn more about these people and how their projects became cover worthy. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Friends of Build Magazine. I am in the west end of Vancouver, which is pretty spectacular, with Eden Marshall of Grant Architecture. They are the client who did the incredible home, I mean just incredible home, on the cover of this year's Whistler Sea to Sky Magazine. It's the one with the, I think it's Canadian Timber Frames is who did the?
0: Kettle River. Kettle River. Kettle, yeah, Kettle River Timber Frame did the uh, the wooden steel in that house.
1: I got to tell you, they did a magnificent job.
0: It's wild. Yeah, we were profoundly impressed with, with the work they did from ground up, like they, yeah. T- just to, to figure out how to build the models to build the timber and steel structure was an adventure.
1: Okay, so everybody should go on our website if you haven't seen the magazine, if you're somewhere around uh, the rest of the world as opposed to being in Vancouver. Because this is architecturally an incredible structure. And how often do you get impressed with work that other people are doing?
0: I mean, we we look for work being done that's pushing the boundaries and that that we all sort of appreciate as architects, which ironically is, is a very, very low percentage of what actually gets built. Okay. But um, no, I mean, we're always looking at at ways that we can kind of do something new and and interesting. And in the case of the Bowen house, I mean, a lot of this was made possible by the software. Right, you know, Paul, this was kind of Paul's brainchild. And he starts with these very fluid, very loose sketches. And then we sort of have to technically step in and start to try and figure out, okay, can we actually build this and how how do we do that? and software like the Revit that we're using and the SolidWorks that Kettle River used to build their shop drawings really
1: did kind of allow it. So how long is the process? How, do you, how long do you sit back and you're trying to configure and figure out, okay, first of all, where does the client come up with a vision for this is what we want for our house? And then second of all, you've got to collaborate with a bunch of people in order to pull this thing off because this is not your standard Sticks or box? You can. There's not a bunch of straight lines in this house.
0: No, not at all. I mean, (laughs) this this one was a little bit unusual too, in that it started sort of with a a very very open client. The client sort of gave us what was largely a blank sheet of paper. And a blank check? (laughs) Almost, not quite. (laughs) uh, With with strings attached. But basically, they kind of turned it over to Paul. Gave us the site. And he came up with some very loose preliminary sketches that honestly translated surprisingly directly into the house you see. Like some of his very, very early sketches, you could just about overlay them over top of photos of what we built. And it's like, it's clearly the same building with the same sort of curves and proportions.
1: Is doing a house like this, like writing a song where sometimes it just all falls into place and... I remember hearing an interview from Paul McCartney and he goes, Hey Jude was literally 10 minutes and it's yeah. the iconic Beatles song. And I look at this and I look, I've seen the f- photographs and the flow of the home looks magnificent. I, the energy's got to be incredible when you walk into it, but do they just fall into place? <sighs> I wish I
0: could say yes, but not, no. e- not exactly. I mean, it's it, it's partly the result of a very open-minded client, and partly re- the result of you know, in this case, Paul was was really kind of the guiding design force behind this thing, and a, and a pile of of experience and knowledge behind how to to volumetrically arrange the space and how to tie it all together. So yeah, I mean, when you do walk into the space, you definitely feel that intent that you know Paul was trying to aim for something spectacular. We were trying to aim for something spectacular. And when you walk through that front door, you definitely feel it. So what did you learn from it?
1: Oof, Because uh, there's a process at some point you're going to be Paul.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, patience and shoot the moon. Um, just go, go for broke from the, the word go, if you possibly can, and try and figure out how to get as close to that, that sky high target as you can. And perseverance. I mean, a lot of this was, as I say, sort of technical execution and just the time investment in, in developing that model to enough detail to allow our fabricators in this, in this case, Kettle River, to be able to take that model almost directly and translate that into their CNC machines and build this thing. So like we were literally building the house in a virtual space that was then translated to, to real. So.
1: so when you, when you go to shoot the moon, there's a high percentage of risk involved and failure is a possibility. Oh yeah. How do you, how do you manage both so that you're not sitting there at the drawing board again, six or 12 months later?
0: I mean, you always try and get buy-in from the client from, from very early on so that there's kind of an understanding as to what we're trying to achieve and what that costs. Cause that's always, it's always the rub. Um, but also not going too far down the literal path of construction drawings before you you have a clear understanding between the client, and the designer, client, and architect. So yeah, I, I mean, in the case of the Bowen project, it was it was pretty linear. At least the first I'd say third of the design and and construction drawing process was pretty linear, and and we had a good understanding. Um, the, the real challenges were just getting the site to cooperate with what we wanted to put on it and get ever getting everything, all the, the groundwork done and dialed so that it went up smoothly. It took longer to do the concrete than I think it did to do the timber and steel.
1: And you were telling me off air that this is was a spec house.
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: you. What was their vision? Like what was their objective? The, the client, the owners
0: of this, this massive property on Bowen subdivided it down into, I, I can't remember how many 10 acre lots, but the idea is basically they're selling estates and they wanted a, a spectacular home to kind of show prospective buyers what could be done. And which is in a lot of ways why we had such such a long lead to, to do something pretty, pretty
1: out there. How long did it take to build that house? And give people what the specs are on the house, like how big is it? How many bedrooms? What are the defining features? Ooh, I'm trying to
0: remember now. Seven, six, or seven bedrooms. Uh, so not overly huge. It's it's not overly huge. I mean, the house is about ten thousand square feet. So I mean, by most people's sort of typical understanding, it's a big house. But it's it's not a crazy proportion. Like the, there's basically three pavilions that step down, and this this wave roof that that sinuously sort of connects everything together. So none of the individual spaces are overwhelmingly huge, um, but nonetheless, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a generously sized house, but again, none of the spaces, none of the proportions of those spaces feel disconnected in terms of size.
1: So Alka Pools did the, did the pool. Is this the house with the cantilever pool over
0: the, the rocks? unfortunately no we didn't cantilever the pool okay. but it is an infinity edge pool so if you're sitting inside the house basically the edge of that pool sort of merges with the pacific ocean in the distance
1: incredible did it win awards
0: did this one win awards none directly that i know of we've had one or two other houses one recently in white rock that won of won a couple of havana awards but um this one no no i don't think it has
1: okay as you can tell, I'm, as I'm asking the questions, I'm more of a curious kid because I don't know the answer. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting one.
0: I mean, we, we put it forward for BC Wood and, and one or two other uh, competitions, but yeah, so far it hasn't hasn't been showcased on that level. That
1: Dave Farley with BC Woods, he, he's a tough tough nut to crack.
0: It's a competitive market, especially in this part of the world. There's a ton of really interesting, innovative stuff being done with wood. But frankly, I'm surprised that we didn't get some kind of shout out. I mean, anybody that's seen the house, you look at the complexity of that wave roof and every piece of lumber is unique. Every piece of steel is unique. Every piece of glass is unique. Like there is a lot of work and craftsmanship that went into that house and like designing aside, like architecture aside, the execution and the craftsmanship in that house deserves recognition.
1: So you mentioned about the Havan award that you won in the White Rock house. What's that house? Tell me the story on that place.
0: I wish I could remember the acronym now. Um, it's the local, basically builders association through either BC or at least the lower mainland. And they recognize custom homes, luxury homes in various divisions. Uh, in the case of the White Rock house, it was up for, um, perhaps surprisingly a couple of environmental performance awards, the house Again, it was featured in Build, so people can probably check it out without too much trouble. But, um, I mean, looking at it, it, from the street side, it kind of looks like a castle, and from the ocean side, it looks like just a glass box. So intuitively, you might not think that it's actually a super high-performance building, but it's actually a net-zero level of performance, um, as far as envelope and, and HVAC and everything else. So, you know, surprisingly enough, this building has won awards and gotten recognition for, for its uh, energy performance.
1: Now, when you sat back before the awards came out, did you look at this project and go, this is one of our finest architectural features?
0: It's, it's up there. I mean, there's certain limitations that come with designing a house to that level of, of environmental performance and okay. energy performance. Um, so, I mean, there are certain compromises, but nonetheless, you know, it's, it's kind of like the three-way trade-off. You, it's money, um, time, it's always money. <laughs> performance, right? So in this case, we got super high performance and a very high level of architectural design. And, but it was a very expensive house to build enough so that we never actually found out the final dollar figure on it. Um, but given what we know about how it was built and the work that went into it, yeah, it's, it's an extremely expensive home, but the performance is high enough that they actually get a check from the grid from BC Hydra every month. So. They do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So explain to me
1: how you create a net zero house. Everybody's heard this buzzword, but I don't think
0: anybody really understands how you get to net zero. It's, it's a bunch of performance criteria. Um, essentially, the house has to be, like it's literally net zero, so they don't want it to require any additional power from the grid. In the case of this house, we supplemented the power by having two different solar arrays, one on the roof, one on, the, on ground, um, both south-facing and the other half is just super high performance building envelope so i mean it's triple glazed uh triple glazing all across the south facade all of the glazing is well protected with sun shading Um, all of the solid walls are are super high performance with a huge amount of insulation in them all of the hvac and plumbing systems i mean there are systems that actually recoup heat from wastewater to put it back into the the house heating systems so It's, there's a lot going on just built into the structure of the house. Um, But unfortunately it comes at a price. Everybody's very excited about sustainability and and high performance buildings. But I mean, if if you want to go as far as you can with a house like this, it's, it is not a cheap proposition.
1: So tell us a little bit about Grant Architecture.
0: Grant Architecture, Uh, Paul Grant, he's been active in the architecture community here in Vancouver since the early seventies, late sixties. He and his former partner, Doug Sinclair, they launched Grant & Sinclair back in 1977, I believe it was. That firm was eventually bought out by Omicron in 2013, and Paul wasn't quite ready to quit, so he started Grant Architecture in, 20 I think it was 2014, and we've been taking on sort of very specific projects, um, high-end homes, school, academic spaces ever since.
1: Is there a focal point? Is there is there a certain home that is perfect for grant as opposed to other projects that you just go, we're going to pass on that.
0: It just doesn't fit our DNA. I mean, we're always trying to find it's the, the best projects always come from a really good fit between the architect and the client and a client that, that shares kind of our vision in terms of what we want to achieve at the end of the day, knowing that it's going to take probably two to three years between design permitting and construction. It's it's a relationship, and the better maintained that relationship is, the better the the final resulting house or or building or interior, whatever we're doing. So yeah, I, I mean, we're always looking for that that client who's um, receptive to to doing something different and taking the time and investing the care to to make it special.
1: So your background is you grew up here, and then you went to UBC, and then went to uh, University of Calgary, That's right? That's for architecture.
0: Correct. Yeah, that's correct. I grew up in the interior in a small town, Grand Forks, but I've spent most of my adult life now bouncing between Vancouver and uh, four years in Calgary. I did an undergrad degree in English, which I thought would kind of be a throwaway, but after finishing architecture and working in the industry for a few years, quite a few years now, I guess, it's occurred to me how much of our business is built on communication and you know, the rhetoric of, of convincing people to do what you, you want to do and what you need to get done. It's, there's, there's a lot of nuance in just in the communication of architecture. So yeah, I kind of take it back. It wasn't a throwaway.
1: your folks will be happy to hear that. Yeah,
0: I guess they will. (laughs) Uh.
1: So what, what do you, Calgary to Vancouver is about as far apart as you possibly can be. And I'm not talking geographically. The landscape in Calgary is not
0: sexy. It's not. Sorry folks. No. It's, but Vancouver is about as good as it gets. It's, it's an interesting contrast between the two cities. I, I spent uh, one year working in, in a small office in Calgary, Mark Bouten, with Mark Boutin um, in his architectural collaborative. And uh, it was an interesting experience because there's actually, I would say um, almost a more conservative clientele in Vancouver than in Calgary when we're talking specifically about architecture really? design home, believe it or not, yeah. Some of the houses that we worked on in, in Calgary, custom homes and and buildings, especially with Mark's office, were really pretty experimental and, and very contemporary in a lot of ways. Whereas where I came from in Vancouver, working with Paul, a lot of that architecture was very, very traditional. There was almost always sort of a, a contemporary twist on it, but. Yeah, we were looking at a lot more sort of craftsman style, sloped roofs, you know, stone, more traditional design elements. Whereas in Calgary, it was like, yeah, let's shoot the moon. Let's, let's play with metals and weird composites and, and make interesting boxes and, and, and do really interesting things. But the flip side of that is this completely out of control sprawl and sort of this stamping of very generic housing off into the landscape ad infinitum. Whereas in Vancouver, clearly we're, we're hemmed in pretty hard by the oceans and the mountains. Yep. So there's, there's a lot more value placed on all buildings and architecture in this town, I would say relatively speaking, but the, the attitudes are, are curiously, I would say more conservative on the West coast in many ways than, than uh, on the prairies.
1: Well, that's because it's the oil, oil belt and they're riverboat gamblers and they,
0: they're used to, you know, the ups and downs of the oil industry and there's probably something to that. There, yeah, honestly, there, I think there probably is something to that. Um, yeah, there's certainly sort of an influx of, of relatively new money there and people that just kind of want to do something different. So, Yeah, and the money's ridiculous there. At times, it really, really is. Yeah, it's true. Yeah.
1: So what challenges you as far as the topography in Vancouver with whether it be the rocks, whether it be the, the pitch for the, for the mountains? What challenges you from an architectural standpoint especially when you're thinking foundations and creating something that's seamless with the earth.
0: It's topography is always a big, big one, but it's funny as, as I hear you saying this, the one thing that pops into my mind is actually weather. Dealing with Vancouver rain has become the single biggest challenge, like going back to the, the cliched sort of condo issue, leaky condos issue through the, the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Weather and water has been a huge factor in, in Vancouver um, followed closely by the topography. But yeah, I'd say that's probably the number one. Okay. Go through that.
1: I mean, water's been an issue for, since the beginning of time, because it flows wherever
0: gravity takes it and you have zero control over it. Very little, very little. So half of our job, maybe 30% of our job is just finding ways to manage water. I mean, we start with these beautiful designs and then we start working sort of backwards through how to detail and, and how to weather protect all these assemblies and, and these spaces and whatnot. And you know the the weather in Vancouver versus the weather in you know more northern or, or eastern climates where you're just dealing with cold, trying to make sure that the water doesn't get into the building. It sounds like a simple task, but um, with you know especially larger buildings with dozens or hundreds of openings and and penetrations through roofs and whatnot. Mm-hmm. It, it becomes a really complex thing. So trying to trying to manage that, yeah, it's probably the single biggest challenge. It doesn't sound very exciting or sexy, but it's true.
1: Well, and it's also interesting because you could be in Tawasin, which is 30 miles south of town and it rains 30 inches a year, or you could be on the North shore where it rains 120 inches. Yep. And that's a dramatic difference.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. And even year to year, I mean, this, this past year, everybody has been paying attention to the floods and whatnot that we had in November, October, November and just dealing with those events and the volume of rain that we had in such a short period of time, you know, like it forced us to go back to a few buildings and reevaluate the amount of drainage that we put on things like exterior decks and and roofs Um, and managing just that, that intensity of rainfall in such a short period of time, you know, like it's actually forced us, you know, the seismic code as well, every few years it's revised and this past year it's forced us to go back and really sort of, rethink a lot of those strategies. What
1: about mudslides? Like like how you've got to address that as well. Because if you scrape the earth, now all of a sudden you don't have trees which hold the earth in place, so
0: now your structures become basically on quicksand. Yep, quite literally. Yeah, it's it's again, I mean with I can't remember what year it was, probably 10 or 12 years ago now, there was an incident where there was a huge amount of rainfall in a fairly short period of time. And there was a whole subdivision on the North shore that started to slip. It did? Yeah. And I, it literally I wish, slipped. Yeah. There were, there were houses that started to move and it was kind of localized into one subdivision, one area. I wish I could remember where it was. It, like I say, it's probably been maybe 15 years. But, you know, we see events like that and all of a sudden geotechnical engineers all start to get really nervous and and architects start to get really paranoid and we start to really like second guess how we, how we attach the buildings to the ground. And again, how we deal with moisture. Like I wish it were a a sexier topic, but managing drainage around something as pedestrian as managing drainage around a foundation and making sure that, that you know, we don't liquefy the soils under a house and we get that water away. You know, it's, it's so fundamental to what we do that, yeah, until we figure that out, design is, is you know, it, it definitely has to come second. So
1: when you think about that, you, I mean, it's been a constant struggle here for years and I've got to believe how things are built today are vastly different than how they were built 20 years ago or 40 years ago. Oh Yeah. Yeah, code, yeah. Codes are totally different, right? Vastly, yeah. And are you not feeling like you're overbuilding it to start, and then all of a sudden you're oh, not? Oh yeah,
0: oh yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, there's a funny anecdote. Uh, a few years ago, I was poking around in in the office, and I found a copy of I think it was the 1979 building code. Okay. And it was basically <laughs> the the size and weight of an Archie comic. Like it was probably less than 80 pages, and it was you know half the size of an eight eight and a half by 11 sheet okay. of paper. And then you look at the building code now, just the building code, and it's two volumes in a full-size ring binder. And that doesn't include plumbing and fire and structural and everything else, right? How does
1: anything burn here? It rains all the time. Eh, that's
0: a good question. <laughs> so people find their ways, careless, carelessness and, and bad judgment. But no, it's, it's true. I mean, it feels like we're overbuilding a lot of the time, especially some of the structural systems that we see. But then you see an event, like a massive earthquake event, and you realize like, okay, there's a reason that we're, you know, seemingly overbuilding. Um, but one of the things that is interesting, especially in the last building code, again, it may be interesting only to structural engineers and architects, but we're seeing an increased specificity. So, you know, the seismic code for for BC and the lower mainland is broken down much more finely than you might expect. Like New Westminster is in a different zone than downtown Vancouver and the North Shore is in a different zone than that. So, and they're all built to different sort of limits and and tolerances. Okay. So at least we are seeing a finer grain of of nuance to that design. But at the same time, you know, there's, in a world of increasingly high liability, uh, you know, everybody's got to make sure that they're protected. So we end up with extremely robust structural systems.
1: Well, I don't know if this helps put your uh, mind at ease, but I mentioned that my wife and I are building a house in Scottsdale Mm -hmm. and we just got permits last week. And, it took us eight months, well the permits went in in uh, August, so what's that, eight, nine months to get permits. And they wanted us, understand this is Arizona, a hundred year floodplain. Interesting. For Arizona. The problem with Arizona is because the the soil is so baked, mm-hmm. when, it, when it rains, and we get monsoons, when it rains, the water doesn't seep in like yeah. it does here. Yeah. It runs and it can go crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And- my architect is looking at it going, you've got to be, like, this doesn't make any sense. But 20 years from now, we might be looking at it going, boy, that was the smartest thing we could have done.
0: No, absolutely. It's true. And and yeah, it's, it's these little things that we don't necessarily think about. Um, I had a client at um, back home in where I grew up in Grand Forks, and we were designing a, a replacement home for his current home, which happened to be about a hundred-year-old ranch house. Okay. And they complained every year that basically the floorboards got wet nearly every spring, two out of three years. So we thought, okay, we'll clearly we'll have to raise the house. Then to now, the new house ended up being close to 10 feet higher. What? The the main floor living area had to be lifted. It was at least eight, if not 10 feet off the existing main floor house level. So it was a completely different house and it was further down on the property. But that's the kind of apparent redundancy we have to build to yet a few years after they started construction on that house we had a massive flood event 2018 in grand forks was was 100 if not 200 year flood level okay and that don't tell me it got up to eight feet no it, it didn't it didn't but still i mean there was significant damage to the old house and that a lot of that property was underwater again so you know it made sense the process to get there was downright funny, though, when we brought the city building inspector out to basically tell us what height we had to build to, because it's in, it's in the regional district and it's all a little bit relaxed, let's say. We literally went down to the side of the, the riverbank and he drew a line on the side of the river where the high water mark appeared to be and said, there's your mark. Like, okay seems a little loose, but uh, that's what we got to shoot for. We'll, we'll take a reading and that's what we'll hit. But yeah, in the uh, end it was, it was the prudent way to go. Forgive
1: me, but I'm envisioning Beverly Hillbillies when, uh, when you're talking about that.
0: It felt a little bit like that in ways. Yeah. and I've been to Grand Fork several times, so it's kind of a cute little town. It's, it's a cute little town. Yeah. It's, um, Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of sort of shoot from the hip, um, design and engineering in the area that, that dates way back. There's a lot of farmers that kind of did whatever they had to do with the resources they had. And some of that thinking has kind of carried forward, but I mean, it's, it's improving. So what excites you
1: about architecture now that you've been out in the field, out in the field, out of school for 20 years? Mm Mm-hmm. How much different is it than the theory? Like how much more fun is it to, to build these and design these structures? And by the way, can you freehand, can you draw or are you just strictly on CAD and My, Revit?
0: Uh, my freehand sketching is okay. It's a lost art, you know, it totally is. Yeah. And I have so much respect for the people that have really maintained that and honed it, you know, in, in school, you've got to do, you know, a studio session on, on sketching and I've done life drawing classes and things like that. So it's, it's there somewhere in the, in the background. But um, truth is so much of our work is driven by production drawings and detail drawings Mm -hmm. that you, you get vanishingly little time to enjoy that process early on when you're sketching for design. Um, As far as what I still enjoy and maybe what gets me sort of more excited than it did back in architecture school, sort of there's a, an increased appreciation for the importance of design, but also how little time you actually spend during the design phase in building a building. And I've, I've kind of developed an increased appreciation for the whole process of, of developing a a really coherent drawing set and detailing that works and, and making the detailing speak to the design intent of the building. There's this, this highly technical relationship between executing a building, building the thing and making it, relatively straightforward for the contractor to actually do, but still at the same time, retain that design intent, like right down to the details and, and make it speak to sort of the, the core ideas that drove the project in the first place. That continual line through the, through the project from inception through to completion is I think really sort of something I've gained a, a much deeper respect for over the years. It's kind of
1: like function and fashion. You know, you want it to have curb appeal, but it's gotta be functional. yeah. And you've gotta be able to pull it up. You could create the craziest design, but if you can't build it, you can't build it.
0: Quite literally, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of a running joke in architecture school. We do these drawings and, and sort of half-baked uh, details. And a lot of the time, you know, you talk to a contractor and they'll laugh because it's not physically buildable to do what you've drawn, you know? But um, kind of to your point to form versus function, I mean, right now there's there's this, tension between sort of hardcore sustainability and environmental performance, you know, lead standards and and step code and everything else. But for us, there's sort of an equal and increasing need for what we would describe as sort of social sustainability, which, you know, is kind of a fancy way of describing just good design, you know, spaces that that people want to inhabit and want to use from Uh, urban design scale all the way down to, to furniture building cutlery, you know, like if people don't want to, to use the thing and and take care of it, it's not going to last. And if people aren't willing to engage with that piece of architecture, no matter how high performance it is or how sustainable that design may be, if they don't use it and they don't want to use it, it's ultimately, it's a failure. So finding that balance between the, the form being, sort of the social sustainability side and the function being that hardcore performance side there's a really interesting space that's kind of evolving right now and a tension that's evolving right now as both become increasingly important
1: how do you how do you balance that i mean i'm just thinking about clearly the design you you've got a vision for the design but it's got to be executed how do you balance it and and how how long does it take for a project when you conceptualize it, you put it on paper. How long does it take for you to shape the entire project so that it all comes together at the end? It's kind of like writing a book or writing an essay or or doing your thesis for grad school. There's a bunch of components that have to be put together, but it's a puzzle. It has to at the end, it's gotta it's gotta
0: work together. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean I coming from English, I kinda think about it in terms of drafts and revisions, right? Like there's it's always an iterative process. We go round and round and and Again, we try and retain that sort of core notion that, that drives the, the design of the thing. We call it a party most of the time. But coming back to that core idea, while we're developing all of the, the functional aspects of it, is, is really, really important and uh, often gets lost. You know, it's, it's easy to kind of just go down the rabbit hole of, of designing what we need and not what we kind of want but both need to be present for sure.
1: When you're designing a home, how do you make sure that it's not a trendy home that needs to be blown up in five years? All of a sudden it's out of vogue, oh. you, you know, um, um, mountain modern seems to be the, the big buzzword in the States. I don't know if, if you use that same terminology here. Yeah. To some degree. Yeah. I mean, we, we, yeah. Even, well, don't sound bored with it. It's just, it is the,
0: no, the absolutely. Rage. It's, it's, it's very true. Um, and yeah. then
1: the reason i'm told that from another architect they go mountain modern is so uh it's very predictable because the kids coming out of architecture school don't know how to free draw so they don't
0: want corners they want everything in squares yeah you've <laughs> probably heard that uh yeah some some version of that for sure yeah i mean the the, the mountain modern thing it's it's i see it as sort of a, an evolution of kind of the the craftsman home, you know, in Vancouver, we, we, there's a million of them, you see them everywhere. It's kind of a form and a proportion that everybody's familiar with and everybody's kind of comfortable with. And the, the mountain modern in my mind is sort of a twist on that, where we've taken sort of those proportions and those ideas and applied sort of more rustic materials, timber frame, more stone, you know, um, in ways adapted kind of that, that uh, language, that, that material design language, but I don't see it as a huge departure. You know what I mean, like in terms of absolute form and and the design of the the spaces, it's the treatment of those spaces and and the finishing and whatnot that that's kind of
1: shifted but so on our way over here, we were talking about mid century modern mm. we we're talking about palm springs about about Frank Sinatra, those glamorous yeah. homes and how cool they are. yeah, do you, do you see the architecture today? Can it mirror that
0: I think it can it's it's you're always, as you mentioned before, you're always kind of chasing these trends or or trying to maybe deflect them. I mean, mid-century modernism hit on this really interesting balance of a clear focus on materiality. You know, there there was a real intent behind trying to use natural materials, woods, um, terrazzo, stone, and- This is back in the 50s. Yeah, yeah, through the 50s and 60s, and, and even 40s to some degree. But those spaces, a lot of those homes were the proportions and sizes are actually really quite humble. Like the the Kaufman house in in um, Palm Springs, it is not a huge house. You look at the plans and, and the size of that, the rooms and whatnot in that house, it's not a massive sprawling residence. It's actually quite humble, but there's a huge amount of consideration paid to those spaces. Whereas there's a bit of a trend now where bigger is better the spaces are huge, but they're not necessarily what I would describe as coherent. There's, oh,
1: I agree with you. We, we right? call it
0: big for the sake of being big.
1: Ex- exactly. There's no, it doesn't gel. It doesn't
0: flow. It's just big. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a challenge in understanding what the spaces are actually trying to do. You know, how are you supposed to use a, a seven or 800 square foot dining room or 8,000 square foot dining room in yeah. some cases, right? Like it's, yeah. it's not, it's not pragmatic, it's not useful or programmable in, in sort of a human way. It's, it's a showpiece, which, I mean, I guess that meets somebody's need on some level, but yeah, mid-century modernism for the most part was an interesting sort of turn towards accessibility as well. Cause these weren't in a lot of cases, there were some really, really nice homes. Like you think about the Eichler homes scattered around the U S mostly in California, and like these, these were fairly pedestrian homes, but there was a really nice degree of consideration paid again to the materiality and the proportions and the light and the space. It was quality over quantity. And, and you know, I think no matter what period you're looking at, architects are, are trying to imbue spaces with a higher level of, of thought and consideration and bring that level of quality over quantity. So, you know, I think if you're, You're trying for a timeless design, coming back to that notion of quality and, and having a space that, that speaks to the need of the space, the need of the client has good light quality materials and, and sort of those basic enduring aspects. You know, I don't think that's going to fall too far out of, out of vogue. I find it
1: funny when I walk into a house and it was built in the eighties or built in the seventies. And they've got the fireplace right in the middle of the view to the ocean. Yeah. Or my favorite,
0: the TV right in front of the window to the view to the mountains or the ocean or whatever. Got that 60 inch TV, but why look outside? Do you ever think back and and
1: go, first of all, what was the builder or architect thinking? And is there something that we do today that, that people are going to look back 30 or 40
0: years and go, what were they thinking? I... I do believe there there will be a lot of questioning, just as there is now. i mean i I was in real estate. I still kind of am in real estate, but for a while, I was selling properties full time and you know you end up in a lot of homes and you see a lot of yep. questionable decisions being made and and you know from new builds to renovations, like you say, people not capitalizing on basic things like view and light and you know just circulation through the home. I forget where I read this. It was a few years ago now, but there was some statistic talking about the relative value added through having an architect or a trained designer spend some time on that, on that design of a new home, any design of a new home, but the value added later on down the road when that, you know, hypothetical sale happened was, you know, higher than the cost of hiring that designer, that architect to do the work on it. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, I, I, one of the things that we kind of preach is value over cost. You know, we're we're bringing value to a project as an architect, whether you're required by law or not. You know, that's our entire sort of of ethos. And coming right down to just about any residential home, I mean, yeah, it'll cost a little bit more to engage an architect, but ninety percent of the time, ninety five percent of the time, the value you get not only out of you know the, any future sale. But just out of your use of the house and enjoyment of the house, basic things like shading and solar access, you know, the value is definitely there. Do you have many clients that walk in the door and they're not sure they
1: want to use an architect? A few. Yeah, we've we've had a few. Um, I can kind of see the logic, but it doesn't, it's diminished pretty quickly.
0: It is. Um, it's, it's kind of a a twofold question. I mean, the work that I was doing independently when I was working in the interior a few years ago versus the work that I'm doing now, you know, it was a small town with a lot of people with relatively limited resources. So I ended up doing a good number of small jobs for sort of friends and acquaintances for not a lot of money, but trying to, you know, give people something that, well, in a lot of ways, honestly, trying to find ways to, to pay myself for the work by modifying the scale and scope of what they were doing to, that made more sense for everybody. You know, something that people don't always, often think about is the long-term costs of basic things like heating. You know, people show up and say, I want a 5,000 square foot house with four bedrooms mm-hmm. because X. And you ask them, it's like, okay, well, what are you actually going to use the house for? Do you have three kids, four kids like what is what is your need? What is your intent for the for the building don't Don't necessarily show up with a program pre you know baked in and taking that step back and and really looking at the house in terms of um a space for how they want to use it and not just a collection of of bedrooms and and living spaces.
1: Have you been to uh, Rhode Island to some of the mansions, the Vanderbilt mansion or we Sadly haven't. no. Sadly no. No, the that
0: part of the world I definitely want to get over there but I've never been.
1: Okay, so put it on your bucket list because it's what you were saying prior to our conversation there. Those mansions are spectacular. Mm. Now, the one in, we went into two of them in Rhode Island and the Vanderbilt mansion I think was 138,000 square feet. Wow. Oh. And that was their summer mansion because their main home was 220,000 square feet and it was on 57th and Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. Ooh, and it wow. was I uh, just think of it was an entire city block. Yeah. Now think of what that's worth in Manhattan. Staggering. A
0: billion? Yeah. Right? Yeah.
1: And those people, the functionality of those homes, or like Hearst Castle down in California. Have you been there? No, I know of it and kind of know a little bit about it, but I haven't been. Well, it's just it's fascinating to look at the architecture. Now, obviously, these people entertained for a living and they were the fabric of the Industrial Revolution, whether yeah. it be the Mellon Home or, or Rockefeller or whoever. Yeah. You should, as an architect, I think you would be fascinated. Yeah. And to see their kitchens, their kitchens are often an afterthought. Now, they're big enough, but they're not, if you look at yeah. it in today's style.
0: Oh, yeah. It's, it's like 1% of the house.
1: Well, and it was in a back corner. Yeah. Now today the kitchen
0: is where all the parties happen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which kind of harkens back to the whole notion of the hearth back in, you know, practically stone age times. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. You think about some of these, these semi modern day industrialists and the the massive homes and mansions and connect that to places like Versailles. You know, I, I went to Versailles in 2013 and that was my first visit there and it's just staggering. It is absolutely staggering, the show of wealth and sort of the, the equal incoherence of the actual building as a home. It's just gallery after gallery after giant hallway that leads into massive, you know, like a dining room that'll seat a hundred. And the grounds are equally preposterous. They are phenomenal, aren't they? Truly. And now we kind of look at it as this historical relic, this, this part of this broader archive. But at the time, I mean, just the the show of, of opulence and wealth is fascinating and, and carrying that sort of thinking forward to, you know, people like the Rockefellers and Vanderbilts. And even to some degree now, you know, you, I was reading about some mega mansion recently that's that been on the market in LA and sort of the, the precipitous drop in cost is that thing as the developer built it and then tried to sell it and then wasn't able to sell it. But, um, yeah, I mean, even today we're, we're still kind of trying to echo those ideas and traditions, sometimes successfully, sometimes not.
1: Yeah. The, the disparity of wealth back then is largely
0: not a whole lot different than today. In ways. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is, it is kind of fascinating. You look at sort of the, the wealth split, um, especially in, in the U S right now. And it's, it's pretty astonishing really. Yeah. <laughs>
1: astonishing is a, is a good term. Yeah. When you travel, you
0: can't turn your brain off from being an architect. No, it's kind of a running joke. I, I, when I travel with my friends, especially the, the ones from design school, from architecture school, we kind of joke that it sort of ruins you because you look at everything with a critical eye, whether it's furniture or cars or watches or buildings, like your, your critical eye never shuts off. And I have... I find myself sort of forcing myself to not speak or shut up more often than not when we travel to these places. Cause a lot of the time it's, yeah, you, you just find yourself critiquing more than you should probably.
1: So do you take any ideas from these trips? Do you, do you oh, yeah. take endless photos
0: and go, Hey, that's Loads. actually a pretty cool idea. Oh yeah. Loads. And honestly, honestly, more often than not, it's, it's in the places where you don't expect it. You know, um, just, and sometimes it's just strange experiences. Like we were walking around, this is quite a few years ago now, we were walking around Sintra in Spain in mm-hmm. the off season, it was early February. And it's this incredible UNESCO world heritage site. And the whole area is just full of of these basically vacation homes for sort of the the Spanish or the Portuguese aristocracy back yep. in the day. And weirdly enough, I don't know if we were trespassing or not, but we ended up walking into a couple of these basically castles that were under renovation. And a lot of these spaces and, and how you moved through these spaces and the way they were lit because there was no, no artificial lighting was really interesting in, in terms of sort of a, a study of how to light a space with natural light and achieve certain really dramatic effects. And so, yeah, I mean, we took a, a ton of photos of these, of these various houses and spaces. One I remember in particular, um, I think, it, I wish I could remember what it was called, but basically you walk into this house, it was built by um, either a group of stonemasons or one particularly famous stonemason. But as you walk through this estate, you end up at the bottom of this well. And the only light is coming in from above. It's probably 30 or 40 feet in diameter. There's no artificial lighting. And you basically go from complete darkness into this tube and you're in the bottom of this tube, but the, and it's all made out of stone and it's 40 feet. It's gotta be close to 40 or 50 feet deep. So you should sort of feel this sense of claustrophobia, but you don't, you, you just kind of have this, this sense of ascension towards light, but it is so focused because of the experience as you walk into this thing and through it, the whole thing is kind of choreographed. It was just a really interesting study in, how to lay out, you know, in more pedestrian terms, how we lay out a plan in a house. We, we try to treat it like a story. So you don't wanna give away the ending, right? You kind of lead people through and give them well, bits I and like pieces. That. Yeah, um, instead of, you know, giving away the view, as soon as you throw open the door, you, you make it a bit of a path, bit of a story. And this experience in was was that, but times 10. Because just the level of detail and the stonework and, and the experience was just so vivid and extreme that it it's yeah it was just really seared into my mind. Yeah, I have a friend in Bend,
1: and he actually has a restaurant called Cafe Sintra. He's from Sintra. Oh, neat. And when you said Spain, I'm thinking no, the Sintras in Portugal. Yeah, pardon me, Portugal. No, 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 yeah, you you corrected it, and it's I just hear that it is magnificent. It's insane. It's it's truly beautiful. Yeah. So how do you take stuff from you mentioned Versailles? And Sintra, how do you take stuff from the old world, being Europe? And we're, I mean, the craftsmanship today in Canada or the US is not what it was because we don't have the old world craftsmen. So the finishings, which is every like, we're in this magnificent apartment overlooking Vancouver and it's got the wainscoting of it looks like walnut or cherry. And it's, it's stunning and it makes you yeah.
0: feel very homey. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a couple of things working against us, just material costs have gone bananas, but you're right. I mean, the the craftsmanship and just the craftsmen are going away, you know? I mean, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, Paul and, and to a lesser degree myself, we were working on houses where there was a ton of cut stone, like a lot of limestone cladding and a lot of, of very complex, um, stonework on the interiors as well. And there was a guy, his last name was Rojack and he's retired a while ago. Um, Great name. Yeah. And (laughs) I mean, this guy was an absolute master. He would hide these little Easter eggs around the house. And you know, the one that I remember, he, he carved a snail into a limestone, um, windowsill on the exterior of the house that he told nobody about, but eventually the, the owner discovered this thing. Right. Um, and this guy, like, it was wild what he could do with stone and what his team could do with stone. And in a few years ago, uh, we were working on another house in West Vancouver that called for a lot of cut stone and we found a place to do it. I wish I could remember what their name was. I'll have to, I'll have to try and dig it up for you and you can maybe mention it in the, in the credits or something like that. But Redleaf, it was Redleaf Stoneworks Um, and they did a great job, but, Eventually, they closed up too for lack of work. And, like, right lack now, of work? lack of work, believe it or not. And right now, I can't think of another stoneworker that could achieve that, that end result at all. I'm sure there's maybe a couple in the lower mainland, but there are so few people doing that kind of work now, mainly because it, it's just really, really expensive. But again, oh, there are you know, people that
1: will pay, they don't care.
0: Yeah, they're out there. Yes. But there's, again, back to your earlier point where, where people just kind of want huge space and they would rather pay for more than higher quality. It's it's something that we're always fighting against, right? So, do you therefore, do
1: you have to design around the fact that you don't have those traits? Oh, so, yeah, we can't do that.
0: Well, in, that's a lousy place to be. It's true. In some cases, it really, really is. I mean, even carpentry, like it, it sounds mundane, but we were designing a handrail um, about two years ago and- we were kind of designing it based on, a, on a another one that was done in another one of Paul's houses 25 years ago. Okay. And you know, the way Paul tells the story about the guy showing up fueled by Scotch every day and you know, doing this, this handmade. Don't judge. No, not at all. The, the, the final result was amazing. It was this beautiful sinuous um, piece of wood that, that wrapped up, I think three stories, but there was a level of sort of artistry there that we just couldn't find anybody locally to achieve. You know, we, we drew it and drew it and drew it and showed them like how we thought it could work and we couldn't find anybody locally to actually pull it off. And we ended up, weirdly enough, we ended up doing it out of a massive piece of cable instead of wood because it was more valuable.
1: You know, that is one of the, the shames that as I'm talking to people doing these podcasts, I, Eden, it drives me crazy. The fact that these young people, people and part of the reason for for doing the podcast is because I really want to inspire the younger generation. There's a tremendous opportunity for you know the the uh David Chilton's the the wealthy barber, the millionaire right. next door. Yeah. You look at what they do and and it might, you know, there's their trades, they're electricians, they're plumbers, they're woodworkers, whatever. Mm-hmm. I know some incredibly wealthy people that that's what they do. Oh yeah. And it's an art. And, and, and I bring it up now because, because our builder, Pac West, Jim Yozamp said, Teddy, you never know your passion until you become an expert. It's kind of true. The, it's it, more than, it is true. And yeah. Just think of yourself, 22 years, an architect, and now you're hitting your stride. In theory. <laughs>
0: But there's always more to learn, right? Oh, yeah. It, the deeper you go, the more there is. Absolutely. But no, it's, it's an interesting idea. There's sort of a, an increasing freedom in the more you know and the more adept you are at executing a task, the more fluidly you can move through that work. Yeah. It's, no, there's some real truth to that. Yeah.
1: So it's, it's I, I'm, I'm hoping that some of the younger generation listens to this because they can do extremely well for themselves and have a tremendous mm-hmm. sense of, of pride in what they do. by creating something and creating something of value, not just
0: mundane pedestrian stuff. Absolutely. And again, this kind of comes back to this whole notion of social sustainability, you know, the flip side of, of all of the energy and and ecological sustainability, taking pride in that work, you know, the, the people that, that build these beautiful things, whether it's sculpture or stonework or high-end furniture or whatever it is, you know, imbuing, that object or that space or that building with that energy, I think is a palpable, you know, there's a, there's a palpable contribution there for sure. So what do
1: you do to inspire the other architects on your team? (laughs) So they're always pushing. So they're always striving for more creative ideas.
0: Yeah. I think it comes back down to something oddly enough, something that Paul said years ago to me, and it was quite simply, don't be afraid to be bold. You know, we're, we're in the business of trying to build something special for people. And the mechanism to get there in ways should be behind the curtain in terms of their experience. But at the end of the day, we're we're trying to do something special and something, you know, spectacular or meaningful in some way. I think it's keeping that core idea. Don't be afraid to be bold and deliver something that somebody honestly gives a shit about at the end of the day we're not delivering disposable cups this is something that we want the the users to enjoy for 40 60 80 years whatever it is right maybe it's an heirloom maybe they pass it on to their kids but these houses you know one of the interesting things that that has come to light over the years a lot of the houses that paul has done you know these the the people that built them 30 40 50 years later are still living in them you know, we're not seeing much turnover in these custom homes at all. You know, the only one that I can think of right now, sadly the owner passed away, but um That's yeah, a lousy out. It was a lousy <laughs> out, it was really a shame. He was, he was a really, really nice man and the house was incredible. And he was really deeply engaged with that design too. That was another example where the client was really switched on and really passionate about that house. And the resulting building is, is amazing. Like it transcends just what you would expect to be a dwelling. And it's, you know, it's very clearly an extension of both the designer and that, that client and that end user. And it's, it's a really neat building. It's a really, really neat house.
1: You know, you have an obligation every time you're talking to a client, as I'm listening to you talk about being bold. How many times do people just go through the motions? And yet, if you went and saw Elton John, who's performed, he's sung Funeral for a Friend thousands of times. Yeah. But you hear him at a concert and you thought it was the first time he had sung it. He gets that wrapped up. Yep. And so, Paul's advice to you is I think profound. You've got to be bold. You've got that client's expecting this for you to be opening night.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. All of us, right? No, absolutely. We can't just mail it in. Nope. And I, you're very right. I mean, it's one of the biggest challenges is to stay excited about what you're doing. And to your point about, you know, becoming an expert allows you sort of this increasing flexibility and, and freedom in it. It's really, really true. Um, you get to a point where you're, you know, hopefully pretty good at what you're doing, but you're right. You have to bring your A game to every project. And it's, probably, you know, it's, it's kind of that 80, 20 thing, right? Like 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people and that last 20% of effort where you're, you're really pushing to do something, you know, pushing yourself to do something maybe yep. outside your comfort zone and the work required to bring the client with you, honestly, a lot of times is is part of that package. Um, but that's, that's kind of why we go into architecture. Otherwise we would have just gone into you know, probably just gone into construction or something. How cool is it,
1: as we're wrapping up, how cool is it to to drive around the city and go, well, that's
0: a house I worked on. Ah, oh, that's a house I worked on. I mean, that's got to be pretty gratifying. It, it is. It is gratifying. And, it, and it's funny because, I mean, a lot of the projects that we work on take so long to finish. You know, the, the school that I'm wrapping up right now, phase two of the school I'm wrapping up right now, you know, I think the first conversations about, you know, the real estate acquisition for that, for that building were 2014 or 2015. Okay. And we're just starting to button that up probably July this year as a complete and finished thing. So, you know, there's a lot of, of time and sweat equity and, you know, early mornings and sleepless nights that go into these buildings and yeah, you know, you see it finished and there's definitely a, definitely a sense of pride.
1: Well, you guys... From what I've seen, do an incredible job. Thanks. And I love the creativity of the home on the cover, the Bowen home. Mm -hmm. I'm sure every other project you do has got some sort of flair that goes with it. And that's the neat part. And it's also probably very gratifying that you've got clients that trust you enough to give you the liberty to fulfill their dreams. Absolutely. With your process.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's, it's been fun and yeah. Injecting any, every project we do with some, I don't want to be too glib and call it a level of absurdity, but yeah, we, we try and bring some, at least, you know, interest, creativity, sense of humor, something to it. Yeah, for sure. Well, Eden, thanks for uh, spending an hour with us. You didn't think you'd get through it. You said something like can you fill an hour with conversation i wasn't quite sure that i could do it on my own but no <laughs> you Ted, did it fine <laughs> you've been a very good host Ted. thanks <laughs> no that was great thank you and uh thanks for
1: being flexible um for uh, everybody listening i appreciate uh eden and yesterday i missed my flight and our luggage didn't show up so we had to reschedule this so uh thanks for uh thanks for being a sport
0: no worries that's life right
1: all right Until next time, I'm Ted Bainbridge, and thanks for listening to Friends of Build Magazine. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can find everything discussed in this episode and more in our show notes below. I'm Ted Bainbridge, and you've been listening to Friends of Build Magazine podcast.